внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. From money laundering to stealth investment through opaque shell companies, strategic corruption is one of the main vectors of Russian malign influence abroad. It erodes democratic institutions, weakens Western resolve and unity, and enhances Moscow's efforts to dominate its neighbors. It also enables and strengthens Vladimir Putin's autocratic regime at home. The administration of U.S. President Joe Biden has elevated combating corruption as a national security priority. But is it enough? And what more needs to be done? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Capitol Hill is Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the USLC Commission, an independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. Welcome back to the Vertical Ball. Love being here, Brian. Thanks for the invitation. Love, love, love having you. Love your enthusiasm. Also joining us from Vilnius, Lithuania, one of my favorite cities in the world, is leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and for a Russia without lawlessness and corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Minister in 2002. Welcome back to the vertical, Vladimir. Thanks for staying up late with us tonight. So great to be back with you, Brian. Thanks. Great to have you. So last week, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced new measures to crack down on money laundering and illicit finance from abroad. Most notably, she unveiled a new kleptocracy fund to reward tips on where corrupt uh, where corrupt foreign leaders hid their money in the United States. So that's a good thing, I think. But key anti-kleptocracy provisions were also removed from this year's Defense Authorization Act. These included a reauthorization and reform of the Global Magnitsky Act, which sanctions human rights abusers, and the Combating Corrupt Global Corruption Act, which would require reporting on corruption levels in other countries. Paul, I know you've been deeply involved in a lot of this legislation. We've talked about it on the podcast before. We talked about it, it, its importance. What is the lay of the land uh, at the moment? What, what's been done? What's off the table? What's in the pipeline? What else do we need to do? And why did this stuff get knocked out of the, D the Defense Authorization Act? Certainly, I want to say I want to say a few things about all of this, and it's it, you know it's it's, I mean it's 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 both it's both tragedy and it's success, right? Because you know, like you like you said, the, the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Rewards Fund, right? That was congressional legislation. That 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 is not uh, an executive branch creation. That is that was authorized, created by Congress, last Congress in the National Defense Authorization Act. And in fact, this time around, we got in the Transnational Repression Accountability and Prevention Act, right? So we we got in a counter Interpol abuse bill. Very strong piece of legislation. It's going to name and shame abuses of Interpol. It's going to make it the U.S. priority to fight Interpol abuse at Interpol, and it's going to prohibit extradition solely based on a red notice. So, I mean, this is a powerful bill to fight Interpol abuse. Do we have buy-in from the allies on that? 
from the allies in the sense on of the, on the Interpol abuse thing. I'm just just curious. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, you know, uh, Jurgen Stock, the general secretary of Interpol, is a German, right? And he's he's been very patient on all this. But of course, the president is now this UAE guy, uh, uh, credibly accused of torture, right? And we've had we almost had a Russian president of this. We have had a I Chinese. No, we almost had a Russian you know, president. And I mean, so so Interpol has become kind of a little bit of a tool of authoritarian states. Um, part of the reason you don't actually get a ton of support from the EU on this, even though we'd love to see more, is because they have their own uh, uh, Schengen information system, right? So they actually don't use Interpol as much as we do. We use Interpol for all sorts of crimes. Like we, it's it's basically our our major cross-border uh, uh, law enforcement uh, information exchange system. But the Europeans, because you know they've got the 27 in the continent, they have their own system. So they 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 aren't as bought into the Interpol system. They aren't as, as preoccupied with it. I'll tell you, the UK, since they've left the EU, have been a lot more interested in this, right? So, uh -huh. so yes, we have, and, and, and the Canadians are interested, although they had some weird situation where they got a vice president at Interpol, but then he got a better offer at, at something and like left after a few months, yeah. and now they, they don't want to offer the, so, 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 so the point is like, Interpol is basically because the Europeans are kind of asleep at the wheel and the UK is just waking up and the United States is is really worried about reciprocity and stuff like that. It's left it to Congress to 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 really be the driving force behind fighting Interpol abuse. And and this is going to happen. You know, it's in the NDA. It's going to become law. It's a okay. big deal. You know, it's a really big deal. And as for as for the other bills, you know, it's it's terrible to lose them. We had it. We had a ton of consensus. Uh, it, it basically came down to you know, in in these NDAA negotiations, these national defense bill negotiations, it's entirely based on getting consensus from what are called the four corners. That's Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans, uh, House Democrats, and House Republicans. And one right. of those corners uh, uh, basically uh, uh, withheld consensus uh, on on four of these bills for for various different reasons. And that's part of the legislative process, too. You know, so it, so this is not the end for these bills. That's what uh, I was going to ask you. you know, these bills, could, not, because the global Magnitsky Act is important. Oh, it's uh, it's gonna it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen one way or another. I mean, and and, and it it needs to be reauthorized. It doesn't expire for another year. You know, um. So so this is this is part of the way forward. See, no process is wasted, right? Just by doing this, just by getting them in there and having all these conversations and making it a priority and having members talk to one another about this stuff, we've like you know you know we've got we've got some you know fire okay. in the at the moment and 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 all of the all of the work on these bills continues i i want to say one more thing and I, I know i'm talking a lot just one more thing um and, and that is the ndaa process was weird this year it was really weird Tell it was not it. normal <laughs> it was it was it was passed through the house but then the senate did not pass a bill um everything was negotiated basically and like at, at odark 30 at the in the last second so any little objection was just kind of like that's it you know right. and, and they could just be made in the last moment and that was over there was no time to actually conference this and do the do the really strong right. that usually happens to get everybody's priorities in so everybody lost stuff this was well, not unique to throwing out counter kleptocracy uh work yeah no i mean well, well when that happened it kind of caught it caught a lot of our attention in fact vladimir and i were at dinner <laughs> when we learned about this and we're talking about it and we're uh, quite frankly we're, we're we're deeply worried it's it's good to hear that those those bills are going to have a second life vladimir how does all this look from your perch um you have you know you've been at the forefront of, of anti-corruption efforts in Russia, uh, you, you you see this issue as importantly as we do. The Kremlin likes to paint anti-kleptocracy initiatives from the West as an attack on the Russian people, um, which creates a PR challenge for all of us. How would you assess what the U.S. and Europe have done so far, and what else do we need to be doing on this front? 
Well, first, I have to say that when uh, all these anti-cryptocracy bills have appeared uh, in the NDAA, many of us were very much encouraged because this is exactly spot on. This is a very important framework on how you can actually make uh, all these inflows, Russian dirty money into America, into Western world, much more transparent. Because uh, currently they have a lot of mechanisms on how to circumvent certain transparency requirements. So in a lot of cases, like Russian investments through private equity funds, we don't know what is exactly going on. And actually, we have been publishing a report on that uh, with the, the Free Russia Foundation in Washington about attempts of, you know, different tentacles of uh, Putin's system to actually get into various important sector of the United yep. States economy. Like, you know, ethane, which is a very important byproduct of shale oil and gas revolution, or, you know, uh, uh, ride sharing services like Uber and Lyft or online data storage, uh, online communications, whatever. They try and sort of uh, get into everything and, and uh, uh, keep their hands on the pulse. So it's very important to track all this uh, uh, suspicious, uh, potentially corrupt, dirty money. So this legislation had um, provided a great framework for that. Now, all the disappointment that just within a couple of months, it disappeared from mm -hmm. the NDA. But Brian, you know, after right uh, next morning, after we had this dinner with you in DC last week, we met with Paul, and Paul reassured me that no, no, it's it's not the end of the world. I, and, I, I uh, was on the phone with Paul that night. <laughs> they reassured as well. <laughs> so, so Paul, Paul was doing a lot of psychological work to calm down angry folks like us, you know. <laughs> but well, uh, don't 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 yeah. don't lose your anger totally, right? I mean, like yeah. like we need to stay active and engaged. No, yeah, we we, we got to channel that anger, yeah. We need to come back to it. And listen, I think what we can really do and what, how I can contribute to this process of further debate and I hope finally adoption of these pieces of legislation is like, let's do a profiling of some of the folks who we're talking about, like Diripaska, because many people, and I talked about this uh, in the US many times, many people have no idea how this guy actually makes his money. He makes his money uh, through nearly total tax evasion in Russia. Rusal pays almost zero taxes to the Russian budget. Uh, however, at the same time, is being one of the largest polluters of Russian environment by far, which raised a lot of protests on the local level because people just don't want to live in these extremely dire conditions near his uh, uh, power plants, aluminium factories, and so on. At the same time, he doesn't pay anything, uh, almost not a single penny to the state. This is absolutely unacceptable. He just He's one of the folks that is exploiting this Putin's mm -hmm. oligarchy system, and the West should know about it. America mm -hmm. should know about it. I think if we supply more information like that, maybe it will also change public opinion, lawmakers' opinion, administration's opinion, and will also help to put forward initiatives like all this uh, very important anti-cryptocracy legislation. Yeah, and Deripaska is clearly on my talking points. I do want to get to him because there's one issue I do want to get to is the problem in the United States right now isn't what's illegal, it's what's legal. And and and, and this is and, and Deripaska certainly is relevant. But before I do that, Paul, I just because all of us are not buried in the weeds on this as much as you are. Could you kind of lay out for us what is on the books right now along this lines, along those kind of anti-kleptocracy measures that are relevant to the to the Russia peace? And then I want to have Vladimir weigh in with like what what more do you think? What more can we do here? What where are the gaps that we need to fill? Can we can we do that? I think that'd be a pretty good exercise for our listeners. Yeah. So 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 sure. So I, I've I've often looked at counter-kleptocracy and sort of 
what I've what I've called three pillars, and I've talked about them on this on the mm -hmm. show before. And I, and I actually I was I was psyched to see the administration largely adopt those pillars. I know. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I know. It, it's very I think it's very clear that they've been it's, listening to your... It's nice that the grown-ups are listening to us, Paul. That's, that's, it's... <laughs> that's nice. in the room are listening to us. Us boys have our fun, you know. But but it's but it's but it's but it's uh no look it's 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 about you know cleaning up our act at home, which is, you know, fixing our own financial and legal framework. It's about going after and disrupting kleptocrat frameworks, like networks rather. Um, and then it's about promoting the rule of law abroad. So doing assistance right and, and helping with the sort of sort of uh, 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 technical assistance in, in building rule of law uh, in, in other countries. So, you know, in that first framework, like, you know, we're, we're so far behind, it's like humiliating, right? Like, I mean, that's that's like, like we, we, so we, so what do we have on the books? So until last Congress, we didn't even, we didn't even have something to abolish anonymous shell companies, right? I mean, we, we just are now abolishing anonymous shell companies and that's good, that's something, right? Uh, but we, but still, the only people, the only professionals in the USA that have to do any sort of due diligence on their clients, uh, that do any anti-money laundering, you know, anything, are banks. So mm -hmm. lawyers have to do nothing, right? Real estate professionals have to do nothing unless you, uh, unless you're a title insurer in one of these 12 cities with geographic targeting orders, where they do have to collect, you know, they have to collect real ownership information for uh, all cash transactions. But that, but that's it, right? So I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, it's really. It's so little, so we need to like get up there. Now that second pillar on targeting kleptocrats, we're actually we've we've historically been pretty good at, you know, because our sanctions are powerful, mm -hmm. our DOJ aggressive, you know. But even even now though, it it kind of feels like even that we're kind of like walking back a little bit. Like you know, we've we've been advocating uh, on the Hill in a bipartisan fashion, and then the Malini 35 Amendment and so on and so forth, you know, four strong oligarch sanctions, right? And mm -hmm. we still haven't seen, you know, and we haven't, even even the last week's sanctions, uh, which, which, you know, they, they released sanctions every day during this Summit for Democracy Week, this Counter-Corruption Week, uh, uh, those were all kind of uh, a little underwhelming. They were, they mm -hmm. were, you know, they were kind of like, you know, the same kind of like, thugs and 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 developing countries and and so on and so forth you know not not the big wigs not the big fish that you really need to fry um and then that that third on the third piece well i mean that's something that that we've kind of screwed up for many decades right our our, our aid has often mm. been either or or it's kind of you know how many courthouses did we build how many police did we right, train you know right, right. it's always like so funny to me because it's like russia's got a beautiful criminal code that we helped write and mm -hmm. it's used to cute people like vladimir you know and it's like, right. it's like you know, just by giving someone the semblance of law doesn't give them law you know so it's right it's, it's, it's been doing that very poorly very very poorly um, but that, but that's a place that you know. There's been a lot of discussion about. That's like where the Crook Act comes in, and some of these other initiatives come in to kind of support, you know, uh, window of opportunities. You know, historic reformers to to like flood or surge to ensure we're taking advantage of 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 uh, like those sorts of opportunities that don't come around all that often. Mm -hmm. Vladimir, where are the holes? What do you, what do you how do you see what we're you know what we've been doing here in the U.S. and what could we be doing better and what should we be doing that we're not doing? I'd say the lack of systemic approach is the problem, and this is exactly what Paul has been saying about, because there are these, you know, tit-for-tat sanctions about some oligarchs, whereas the other bunch of oligarchs is perceived like a normal people. Well, they are not. Uh, one thing that uh, should be recognized is that Russia is a country under Putin where corruption is an institution. Corruption is deeply entrenched. It's systemic. It's like everything, everything the government does, everything big business does. Right. Corruption is an integral part of it. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Yeah. 
Yes. It's a thing, and which is why any investments, any money coming from Russia should be flagged specifically for that purpose, because this is suspicious, because they originate from the country where corruption is not only tolerated, but it's specifically an instrument of power. That's an institution that is deeply entrenched into Putin's system. So which is why, I mean, uh, currently I see that uh, at times when Russians are investing somewhere in the U.S., a uh, committee on foreign investments in the United States comes in and tries to sort of uh, consider what's going on, what's really behind that. I think we need a systemic approach. We need procedures, as, as Paul said, for bankers, for real estate folks. If they see big Russian money coming in, then this should immediately lead uh, to certain due diligence investigation, integrity investigation as to what's the origin, who's behind that. Because essentially, at this moment, we have huge Russian investments in America, and basically, we don't know where this money comes from. Yeah, so we remember, should be doing this on any any Russian investment, you mean? Any Russian investment coming into the United States could be subject to excessive due diligence. Ex exactly right. And this will also be a signal to Russian businessmen who are still operating and uh, are involved in uh, large business inside Russia that, listen, you won't be able to sort of escape because some of them really are trying to portray themselves. No, no, we're working in Russia, but we clean. Hardly believable, should be verified because, uh, again, uh, with, with major attacks on big business in Russia in the recent period of time, it becomes very, very clear that the very survival of, of businessmen operating in a current Russian environment is very much dependent on this sort of deal with the devil. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there will be a suspicion and it's going to be an extremely strong signal to Russian business community, like, listen, folks, you're not recognized as normal people in civilized world anymore. Mm -hmm. And this has something to do also with your political behavior, with your lining up with Putin, uh, basically will lead to negative consequences to you uh, yourselves as well. Vladimir, how much of the Russian investment that comes into the United States or Western Europe should we assume is kind of strategic weaponized investment? In other words, investment with a political agenda to kind of undermine the political system and create a lobby there. You know, the problem of Russian investment is that if we're talking about businessmen who are based operating in Russia and have deep ties with the Russian government, even if they are abroad, like uh, Friedman and Avin mm. and uh, Alpha Group, for instance, right? The problem is that even if they don't arrive with strings attached, obviously right. Putin knows they immediately bring this, uh, you know, uh, news to Putin that, oh, this guy had invested some money in some strategic American sector. This guy has been called by FSB and saying, we're very much interested in, in uh, what you do in the United States. Please tell us. We want you to cooperate, right? Right. So there it begins. It means that even if there is no ill intent in the very beginning, uh, strings attached are always there because all the big business is controlled uh, by Russian government and security services. So there is no protection. Uh, and moreover, what is important and what we began talking about is the origin of this fund. Like 90% of the cases, they are corrupt money. Uh, it's really very hard, almost impossible to make big money in Russia these days without being involved in systemic corruption. And we got to be very clear about that. Paul, you wanted to jump in with something? I saw you. Well, yeah, just to, just to kind of say, like, I mean, I mean, Vladimir is 100% is, is correct. And I, I, you know, I mean, in some sense, this is kind of the challenge of our day, right? I mean, it's 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 a discussion that we happens in the context of the of the Chinese Communist Party as well, and that's like that's kind of like who is really the state, 
you know, and, and, and when mm-hmm. we're, when we're, when we're, when we're trying to figure out like who, who is supposed to register under the foreign agents registration act, who, who, who needs transparency and who's like an investor. And, and, and that's been, you know, a huge problem because as, as Vladimir points out, it's like any business that's sufficiently large, you know, from the Russian context will be state influenced, you know, right. like, like any oligarch with enough cash, that is to say any oligarch will be, will be state influenced, you know, and I mean, will be or state adjacent. So it's, you know, it's, it's how do we create laws that govern this, you know, and, 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 and one of the ideas, you know, has been kind of like, can we, can we say this country is a kleptocracy or this country is a, you know, whatever it is, is a, you know, is a dictatorship or is, does not have the rule of law or something, and then have special requirements Mm -hmm. uh, for, for that set of countries, you know? So anyway, it's, I'll tell you, the discussion is very, very active and it's very, very active on a lot of different fronts because I'm sad to say, you know, uh, the Putin model has some, has some unique features, but it is actually pretty typical of the way that, that autocrats around the world are functioning today. Now, as I listen to this discussion, I can't help but feel that we are, we're not there yet, but if we look at the directionality of that, we are moving toward um, we're far from it, but we're moving toward something that more resembles what we had in the Cold War, right? The Soviet Union couldn't just invest in the United States or in Western Europe in the Cold War, right? Um, their companies were not listed on the New York Stock Exchange. They were not investing in, uh, you know, uh, in steel plants in Kentucky, for example. Right? Um, this wasn't happening. Um, but... I mean, I guess this is more of a question to Vladimir because, I mean, this really affects you directly um, as a Russian national. I mean, do we need to move in that direction? Do we need to be moving in the direction where Russia is just completely cut out like the Soviet Union more or less was? Um, Do we need to move towards, you know, things like COCOM export restrictions and, and things like that? How far along this path do we need to go? Um, to A, achieve our security ends, but B, to not, to not harm the Russian people. This is a tricky needle to thread, if you follow me, Vladimir. Well, uh, Brian, that's, we have to be very open-minded. That's a natural sequence of events. Since Putin uh, very much pities the dissolution of Soviet Union and effectively wants to restore it, I mean, he will have everything that goes with it. Like a, mm-hmm. a legend, right? I want to be the most powerful sorcerer, right? But here's everything that that, that goes with it. And uh, uh, you got to sit for 10,000 years in the lamp. That's, right. that's, it. that's how it works. So, uh, so Putin wants the Soviet Union back. Okay, here's here's all the consequences of that, not only the greatest part, right? Uh, on In terms of the Russian people, uh, I, I, I talked this, about this many times in Washington. There's a very simple solution to the dilemma of uh, how do you disconnect from Putin's regime and its malign influence, but do not harm the Russian people? Sanction the oligarchs, because their money are already stolen from the Russian people, you know. And Russia, they are universally hated and reviled in Russia. And actually, I mean, just uh, what, what you need to do, maybe you should do a report about this, or I can. I will be glad to help. Just uh, remember, like a month ago, when Deripaska's house in Washington, D.C. was raided by the FBI. Now read all the comments on Russian social media about this. 100% support him. Go get him. Get rid of this bad guy. So actually, uh, Russian people are very much an ally of uh, those uh, people in the United States who want to fight global corruption. 
because they, they hate these oligarchs. They hate the fact that they stolen, well, not billions, trillions, trillions, literally, from the Russian people. Uh, they want to go after them. They want you to help. So, so be of help. Uh, and uh, I think this assistance will only be welcomed by majority of Russians. So I think that's, that's a very clear connection. Uh, sanction the oligarchs. And Russian people would finally see that the United but States what, did something good, which is but, supported by, by Russia. But Vladimir, what about when we go beyond that and we're talking about sanctioning Russian sovereign debt on secondary markets, when we're talking about SWIFT bans, when we're talking about, uh, you know, when we're talking about things that are going to affect the Russian people? Because if we start sanctioning Russian sovereign debt on secondary markets, you and I both know what's going to happen to the ruble. And you and I both know what, that, what effect that's going to have on the living standards of ordinary Russians. Um, if Russia gets cut off from SWIFT, that is going to have an immediate effect on ordinary, not just Putin and his cronies, but ordinary Russian people. And I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't do these things, um, but like, how do we thread that needle? Because this is, this is a this is a difficult thing that, and you know, Paul, I'm sure you you have to think about this as you're drafting legislation and stuff. Right. May I say? I mean, uh, let's let's not forget that living standards uh, of Russians are already suffering because of Putin's policies. We haven't seen significant economic growth in 13 years okay. since 2008, right? Uh, he promised us economic miracle. We go down into a longer stagnation that we had under Brezhnev, you know. So that's point number one. Uh, point number two, Russia already has significant financial capabilities to improve the living standards of our people. We have very thick rainy day fund, the National Wealth Fund, mm -hmm. which government has been refusing to spend in the past couple of years during the pandemic, categorically refusing to spend uh, to assist the citizens and the economy. And it's not planning to. It's just adopted a three-year federal budget, 22 uh, to 2024. It envisages that by end of 2024, National Wealth Fund will grow to as much as over 15% of GDP. Now, when we say, uh, what about living standards of ordinary Russians? It, it, it's not a question about sanctions. It's a question about Putin. Uh -huh. Whether he wants to relieve this, uh, release this stash to help uh, uh, Russians improve their living standards or not, it's plain and simple as that. But um, many, many more Russians understand that this aggressive policy course that Putin has taken uh, at the international stage will have consequences. Kleptocracy will have consequences. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, if you take a look at the recent polls, uh, most Russians already admit that the country is in international isolation and there is a growing sentiment to blame it on Putin, uh, uh -huh. who is the, the origin, the origin of all I'd this. I'd like to uh, see those polls, actually. Is that Levada? Yeah, Levada has been uh, recently publishing a poll uh, which uh, has a very grieving admittance of the fact that we are in international isolation. And many more people, the number of people who tend to blame it on Putin is growing. Check that out. I gotta check it out. Paul, I want to come back to you. Um, and I want to shift gears a little bit because this this is an important for people like us that work on this on this side of the Atlantic, we gotta think about this because there's a messaging problem here, right? And Putin is always able to blame the lowest living standards on the sanctions. I think Vladimir correctly points out that it is not because of the sanctions, it's because of Putin and the nature of this regime. But but, but so I, I wanted to have have that little aside on that because I think it's important. But I did want to get back to Mr. Deripaska. Um, and I want to get back to this infamous investment that Rusal made in Brady Industries in Kentucky, um, which to me, this is still absolutely exploitative, deleted, remarkable um, that this, um, that this, this, that, that, that this happened. 
while Deripaska was under sanctions, he was able to legally, Brusol, his company, was able to legally invest in Brady Industries to build, a, to build an aluminum plant in Kentucky. Um, which, you know, and all the political influence that comes with that in a very economically depressed part of Kentucky that very much needed jobs. Um, how do we, is there a legislative remedy to things like this? Because I thought there was a legislative remedy here. This guy is under sanctions, but yet, yet he's legally invested in the state, the great state of Kentucky and the United States of America, completely above board. Well, look, it goes to the power of, of kleptocracy. It goes to the power of why this is a threat and why these corrupt networks are, should be our focus, should be our primary focus, right? This, this, the counter-corruption should be the organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy. It's not yet. I mean, I think we're getting there, actually, yeah, believe yeah. it or not. Like, I really I really can't believe we are. Like, I, yep. I know, Brian, man, I, I just remember you coming to the first panel I ever did on this at the Helsinki Commission, and you were on that panel saying exactly these things. Corruption is the new communist. And at that point, nobody was listening. You know, no, I mean, we, I, had, I we know. had packed the room, but that was like, but now it's, it's really going mainstream, and it's lovely to see. Because here's the thing, you know, I actually think what was what's legendary is that Deripaska was sanctioned at all. I mean, I mean, the the, the there are, there have been no sanctions on any oligarch at the level of Deripaska in the last like few years. Like the, the last time you saw something like that was immediately after the invasion of Ukraine. You right. saw like Sechin and, and and anyway. So so the, the the point is that in this particular case, right? You you actually got it's it's a, it, it's weird. It comes down to a lot of different cleavages like in the weeds cleavages about the use of sanctions and that is that like okay so en plus and Rusal were sanctioned because deripaska was the owner right, right? but then what happens when deripaska divests down to like 49 percent ownership or whatever it's like okay yeah he's clearly still the owner but now it's like by the law you know like like by the by the letter of the that's, law yeah that's what yeah. he that's he exactly is no longer the owner, you know? So it's like, well, now sanctions fall off because he's no longer the owner by the very letter of the law. And 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 see, a lot of this stuff goes goes way beyond Kentucky because it's like th this, this Deripaska has been so, so aggressive in response to these sanctions. Yep. He has sued OFAC. He has he has got his lawyers to use lawfare and the like and, and paid them, I'm sure, a very pretty penny and in, in, in money stolen from the Russian people, you know, to 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 name OFAC targeters in this. He's he's you know so he's so and you know OFAC targeters. I mean these guys are are federal employees with families and they don't want thugs naming, you know naming their names in 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 court and 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 you know it's he he see he hired Lord Baker you know he, he got some right. incredible lobbying operation that 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 worked with the Treasury to get this kind of like you know basically like a completely screwed up and goofy uh, agreement to drop the sanctions on his companies. Right, so he could he could go about this, and part of this was also driven by the fact that you know, did Deripaska hit a point, and that's what's so scary about oligarchs, right? It's like, did Deripaska hit a point where he basically made himself too big to sanction? I mean, we sanctioned like seventy percent of the aluminum market, and all of our allies suddenly started calling up the Treasury, like, USA, what are you doing? That's like that's like seventy percent of the aluminum market. Like, how are we right. going to get aluminum? You know, so it's 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 a it's kind of like this similar problem we have with Otash in Belarus, right? This is well, right, same yeah, exactly. So it's so I mean, like 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 look. To me, Brian, and I think also to Vladimir, I think that anybody who's who's really committed to democracy, 
I say sanction 70% of the aluminum market. I say, I say, if we let somebody like that get control of it, then our immediate goal should be to wrest control of that act. That in and of itself is a security threat. And again, on Deripaska, anybody that's going to be doing business with this guy, take a look at how he actually made his money in the 90s. In the 90s. In the 90s. So the aluminum wars of the 90s were a bloody mobbed up affair. And he came out on top of that for for a reason. Vladimir, how does this look from your perch? I mean, this whole thing. I mean, because this, I find this case, this Russell Brady Industries case in Kentucky, just so uh, disturbing when I when I when I look at it. I have a war story for you, Brian, which is not not nearly noticed to the same extent. When Rosatom through Uranium One, Rosatom is one of the champions of Russian corruption. I wouldn't say it's more corrupt than Deripaska, but clearly they are in the same league, sort of, right? It buys Willow Creek uranium mine in Wyoming uh, through through uranium one deal. And what it does, it shuts it down and the United States dependence on uranium imports grows as a result. Now, where is the investigation? Where is the regulatory report? Where is the investigation on the origins of SATA money? with which they bought all this stuff. And listen, I used to regulate these guys in the government, and I know better. Uh, so th- there, there's a lot of corruption involved, believe me. So, But we can, we need to look at this um, specifically, and obviously it's important what Paul said, that Deripaska only formally, uh, right through the letter of the law, had feel, fulfilled the U.S. requirements. He re- essentially, he remains the de facto beneficial owner and all that stuff. And you speak about the 90s. This is right. This is a criminal story of how he became <laughs> owner of this assets. But again, I would come back to my point. What is even worse? He's, ever, he's making top dollar now by evading Russian taxes. He doesn't kill anybody now. So at least we don't know, right? But uh, that is, I mean, uh, that is probably worse in terms of cost to the Russian people than mm-hmm. what happened in the 90s where prices were lower. He's really evading tens of billions of taxes, uh, and that's a huge problem. And this is corruption because the government lets him because they share the wealth. That's the point, right? So, no, and any, so, any, any listeners that are interested in these stories, uh, I, I strongly urge that you read the Free Russia Foundation's excellent monograph, The Kremlin's Malign Influence Inside the U.S., which Vladimir wrote. I forget if it was two or three, but it was, it was several, more than one chapter on, on several different uh, aspects of this. Um, it's available for free online for freerussia.org. Uh, please read this report. I wrote the preface, but my preface doesn't hold a candle to Vladimir's awesome chapters on on, on energy. Paul, we, we want to jump in. I just wanted to, because I agree, Brian. I think this case is so fascinating. I also think it's like, it's the case. It's if you want to, if you want to really ask, like, I mean, there's a there's a political there's political reasons, but if you really want to ask, like, why haven't more oligarchs been sanctioned? I think you have to go back to this case and kind of kind of see that, like, in this particular case, this was a really high level, extremely dangerous oligarch, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he defeated the United States. I mean, and this wasn't this wasn't yeah. a defeat. This wasn't a defeat at the political. This wasn't like that's what's actually the scariest thing about this is it wasn't. It wasn't a political defeat. He defeated us on our own terms, in the, with our own in the laws, kind of, in our own laws, in the kind of like quote unquote rule of law, you know, environment. This wasn't like some corrupt deal. This was literally like he got a bunch of people that understood the law, paid them a bunch of dirty mm-hmm. money, scared the treasury enough, and basically overworked it enough. You know, and, and I love the OFAC. I don't want to say anything bad about them. I mean, it's amazing that they went after this guy to begin with. You know, but it's like he basically overpowered. 
the U.S. Treasury yep. and got them to drop sanctions. And and that's that's terrifying. You know, well, I mean, Paul, that's terrifying. Question for you, Paul, um, as you're in a position to you know help do something about this. Is there a legislative remedy here? Because there's obviously some legislative loopholes here. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I actually don't think the the problem in this case is legislative necessarily. I think it is. For I mean, I mean, look. Okay, it is legislative. It is legislative. I mean, I mean, I mean the first the first piece. <laughs> the first the first piece is to get is to give is to give more money to OFAC. You know, I mean, is to is to just like like we need to we need to we need to fund this. Like that's what I mean when I say it's not legislative. Like it's it's a resource problem. And for our listeners in, who in don't one, know, OFAC is. The Office of Foreign Assets Control. Foreign so they do the they do the they do the, they do our sanctions, right? So 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 I mean the first first things first, we need to fund counter kleptocracy like we fund one hundredth of the military. You know, like I mean, this is literally our national security. Spend spend what we spend on two F thirty five jet fighters on it. You know, like like literally just spend enough money to protect ourselves. Okay, so that's one. Two is like Deripaska never should have been able to, you know, get the people to work for him and pay them with dirty money that he did, right? But see, this is what's crazy about this is he actually he 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 used mostly British mm -hmm. um, firms that that were connected to American firms, of course, and 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 so it's like it's it's a really weird dichotomy where it's like like I mean, you can go through Britain. <laughs> And, right. and 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 which doesn't enforce its its laws against dirty money to 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 get their law capacity, which is all connected back into the USA because we have like the Anglo-American right. kind of right. legal framework to overturn laws in the United States. I mean, right. it's it's, it's well, quite an extraordinary thing. Well, Paul, you mentioned Farah earlier, and I think this is a job for Farah, but Farah is so outdated, and I've said this till I'm blue in the face, and people are probably tired of hearing me say it. But this is a this is a damn law that was written in 1938. Yeah. Um, and can I say so? So there, you, even if you even if you updated Farah, even if you got everything right, there is an OFAC loophole for like sanctions loophole for lawyers because the idea here is that you know sanctions often get criticized because in one sense they're an extra legal process, right? You're not taken to court. You're not like you know it's like they're an administrative action, which means you have you're you're supposed to have legal recourse, right? So you can you can sue. You're allowed to sue. So. There's a there's like a loophole that allows you to hire lawyers right. because you're you're supposed to be able to sue, but you're only supposed to be able to hire lawyers to to try to get sanctions revoked. But of course, once you have a lawyer, right. it's like okay, now I can do anything. <laughs> you know, um, now the right. now the lawyer can go get PR and whatever and hire everybody else for you and do offshoring and whatever right. else. Right. All right. Well, there's clearly a lot of work to do on, on this front. I want to shift gears now. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the role anti-cryptocracy efforts in the West can play in supporting the goals of Russian civil society activists in Russia. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power of the Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Capitol Hill is Paul Massaro, policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. Also joining us from beautiful Vilnius, Lithuania, is leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Milov, 
addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and for a Russia without lawlessness and corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Energy Minister in 2002. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of Open Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... годом вас. С новым веком. Anti-kleptocracy is pro-democracy. Paul, I've heard you say that more than once. The two are inexorably linked. Alexei Navalny captured the imaginations of the Russian people with an anti-corruption message. But when the West enacts anti-kleptocracy measures or sanctions corrupt Russian officials, the Kremlin inevitably and often successfully presents this as an attack on the Russian people. Started on this in the first half, but I want to broaden it out here and address not just this question, but what can we be doing in terms of anti-corruption that will help people like you inside of Russia? Well, first I have to say, uh, and, and this is what Alexei Navalny has been uh, reiterating all the time, that uh, corruption is the main uh, instrument that is eroding institutions in the Russian society. This is why laws are not working. This is why judiciary is dependent on the government. This is why people cannot get justice and uh, essentially uh, criminal oligarchy is allowed to rob them at will and you can't really protect yourself. Uh, if, if you fall under the wheel, there's nothing you can do, right? Corruption is behind all of this. So yeah, there's a very clear connection. Uh, authoritarianism thrives simply because uh, government wants to protect its corrupt capitals. This is actually the answer. Uh, if, if Putin left after two first terms, he would be a national hero now. But he chosen to stay in power and tighten his uh, authoritarian grip over society simply to protect corrupt money. That's, that, that's a very clear uh, connection between the two. Russian public begins to get it. This is why you see over 100 million views of Navalny's palace movie about Putin's luxurious palace on the Black Sea, right? This is actually why the anti-corruption movement uh, began uh, as just, you know, uh, with simple investigations and publishing some information about all these illicit activities by Putin's corrupt crooks. But uh, later it evolved into a big nationwide scale political movement because many more Russians are saying enough, right? So clearly, democracy and fighting a kleptocracy, these things are very much connected and... Uh, this gains more and more traction and more support within the Russian society. So think about this. Uh, as an ally of an ordinary Russian people who are being robbed systemically, who have no future, they are getting more and more angry with this luxury and trillions of dollars uh, that are ending up in the hands of the few who took control of the government without free and fair competitive political process. Think of Russians, ordinary Russians as allies who, who want to get rid of this corrupt system. You can do a lot to help because they come to you with this stolen money. They want to store it in the West, protected by the Western institutions. So you can put, put an end to this. You're capable. Just go for it and we'll be glad to help. Paul? So, I mean, I absolutely uh, agree with everything Vladimir said. And I mean, it's just so true. 
Uh, and, and I mean, I, we also have a very serious obligation and duty to do this because we are enabling so much of Putin's left. I mean, mm. I mean, you know, I, 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 we've talked about this before, but I mean, you can't say it enough. I mean, you know, Putin's system works because we allow it to work, because we are complicit in it, because we enable these oligarchs to steal in Russia and spend in the West. And if they couldn't do that, this is always something that's like, if we if we forced the oligarchs to actually live in Russia and to, and to spend their money in Russia, they would demand a fairer system. The only reason that they can just say, Putin, do whatever you want here, and we don't care about Russia or the Russian people, is because they don't actually have their lives in Russia, right? Their lives are all abroad, you know? Um, it's, you know, it's the opposition that cares about Russia, you know? Um, but but in any case, a, a few more things just wrote them down. It's, so so that's the, you know, we can expose the corruption, I think, like as, as you know, we're sitting on, I'm sure, a treasure trove of data. And, and you know, one of the, one of the you know, unsung pieces of the counter-corruption strategy that came out last week was, you know, getting the intelligence agencies of the USA to prioritize corruption and not just terrorism and not just China, but like to think in terms of like, okay, you, you figure this out through whatever human networks, like reveal it. You know, like let people know, you know, and then people care about that. Um, another thing is like asset recovery, you know, like like one of the one of the one of the ideas I constantly throw around is like, you know, we're sitting on all these recovered assets and we don't we don't you know, people you know, that is to say the money that oligarchs steal and they put in the USA and then we get back. And there's a whole division at DOJ that works on this. The asset recovery, kleptocracy uh, 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 asset recovery initiative, really, really amazing people. And then this money's recovered and it sits in asset forfeiture funds. You know, it doesn't it doesn't do anything, you know, and, and, and can we find ways to make this money work for the Russian people? Can we can we say, you know, like, OK, your your leaders hit stole your money, hid in the USA. We recovered it. And now we're going to offer you opportunities to, you know, live and work in the USA or or, you know, maybe even opportunities to civil society organizations to do further investigations and and, and so on and so forth. And I mean. The other big thing is like we could prioritize it. Like I mean, we can arrest these guys. We need we need more we need more law enforcement resources into actually like making these guys pay. Because the one the one thing that they do when they, when they put them when they put all their money in our systems is they put themselves under our system. They have put themselves under our law framework. So we should we know they did crimes, you know. Like so let's right. let's put them in jail, you know. But look, we know Deripaska did crimes, and he's you know buying aluminum plants in Kentucky. <laughs> well, we did, we did, we did raid his mansion. So I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not like it's nothing, you know. So it's, I mean, I, I do think investigations are going on in these guys. But I mean, remember that because there's no enablers act, because lawyers can just take dirty money with impunity, you know, the DOJ knows that if it actually builds a case and goes after these guys, they're going to face down the best lawyers money can buy, who are all going to be funded with the money stolen from the Russian people. You know, I mean, and and there was so you 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 recall this, I'm sure, Brian, but like the. There was a there was a you know that incredible Parliament intelligence report in the UK that basically said the the Crown Prosecution Service cannot afford right. to indict Clep they can't afford it because they don't have enough money to continue a case long enough it doesn't not whether they win or not they literally right. do not have enough money to continue the case and that is pathetic like I mean it is it is pathetic that we don't resource these things to the extent that we need to resource them. And then, you know, also take away the resources of the of the of the bad guys. I mean, lawyers should not be able to accept dirty money. That's outrageous, you know? So on a scale of one to ten, where are we? If you say the best, you know, if we had the best possible anti-corruption legislation in place is a ten and a, the worst is a one, where where are we on that scale? I mean, I'll just get a sense of how much more work we have to do. Five years ago, we were at a zero. Like, I mean, mm. there were like literally nothing. 
So when I spoke to the Helsinki Commission about this for the first time five years ago, we were at a zero at that point. We were at a zero. We were literally taking money with impunity. There was no, like the only thing we had was the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative, which was Holder's, uh, you know, Attorney General Holder's idea. It was, you know, an Obama era thing that, uh, that was really focused on Africa mostly. You know, and it was it was really in response to kind of the Obiang stuff in Equatorial Guinea. It wasn't it wasn't like the national security threat of corruption, right? Um, so yeah, five years ago we were zero, absolute zero. Now I'd say we're like a three or at best a four. That would have you know? been my guess. That would have been my guess. But that's yeah. but we're nowhere near where we like. I mean, I mean we're getting there, but we're but it's we're not there. Right. All right, one other thing before we wrap it up, I've got my eye on the clock, um, is there's this long-standing debate among people in this community about the targeted sanctions, and we touched on this in the first half a little bit, targeted sanctions against the oligarchs, thing, uh, very targeted sanctions, versus sectoral sanctions, full-blocking sanctions, right? This debate about which of these is more effective. My feeling is this is kind of a false debate. I think we should probably be doing both, um, but I wanted to get you two to weigh in on this. Uh, Brian, I think there's a very simple cure. Again, I agree that this is a false debate in a lot of sense. Just take a look uh, at the RBC 500 ranking of the biggest Russian companies. They are owned by whom? Try a guess, right? <laughs> so this is when you say sanctions, oligarchs do not exist in the vacuum. Oligarchs right. are owners of the champions of the Russian economy because right. Putin was centering the Russian economy uh, around a handful of big monopolies. Not necessarily state control, but definitely oligarch control, right? So this is essentially the same thing, essentially the same mm -hmm. thing. When you're saying sanctioning the oligarchy, it is very close to so sectoral sanctions also impact all these uh, oligarchic pockets mm -hmm. and the capitals. So this is very much in the current monopolistic oligarchic structure of Russian economy. This is all extremely intertwined. So I think we, we shouldn't go too academic and right. separate. Well, yeah, but, 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 but how about this? I mean, going back to our friend, Mr. Deripaska, again, he was sanctioned individually, but his company was able to evade those sanctions because he, you know, technically cut back his, his, his shareholding there. So, so sectoral sanctions would have stopped that investment where individual sanctions did not. Right? Yes. In, in, in certain areas, sectoral sanctions are far more effective. Uh, and uh, uh, I think Deripaska's inclusion on sanctions list were more done like a gesture. To me, that didn't look like uh, American government had some real intent to go after his dirty money and his dirty business, right? Because they, they actually allowed him to evade and they lifted some sanctions against his companies on purely formal grounds right. uh, at some point, voting in the Senate, which means there was, uh, it doesn't look like there was a real intent to go after him but maybe uh, sometime next time. I just hope Paul comes in, weighs in, and finally this is going to happen. Look, I, 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 I also kind of want to turn the question on its head because I, I, don't, I don't think we need to get in too deep into the distinction between specially designated nationals and sectoral indications. Like, I mean, there's a, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, the problem with sanctions as they currently exist is that it's way too easy to evade them. That it's, that it's a matter of, financial transparency or rather opacity, right? And that that it's too easy to, you know, move everything around, hide your stuff in a bunch of shell companies or jurisdictions. You know, it's like, you know, the, the Deripaska house is a great example. Deripaska had a mansion in DC and it was owned by his cousin, of course. 
Right. You know, I mean, it wasn't owned by him. You know, I mean, it's like, but that's, but that's the problem. Is it's like until we get serious about clean about that first pillar about cleaning up our own house. Right. Um, sanctions will only really. I mean, they'll still cause inconvenience, but they'll but they'll only remain like a naming and shaming tool. But I think we also need to recognize them as the powerful naming and shaming tool they are, which is why we should sanction the Navalny 35, which is why mm. we should throw caution in the wind and take all these guys down and fix our financial system. You know, we should we should not uh, like not allow people to live in our system or or mm. and we should we should be we should be showing that we're making an effort not to. You know, and then when they still do, we should fix that, you know, but you're never going to get everything perfect right away, you know, but it it, it really is a matter of cleaning up Right. Our financial and legal system, which is just like so full of holes, so right. full of holes. And I'm beginning to think that, I mean, watching watching the 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 Ukrainian border at the moment for to to, to harken back to a topic we did three weeks in a row before this week, and we're taking a break from it this week. Putin may force our hand there, and this this debate may become completely academic um, at some point. But we are bumping up against the end. I am mindfully watching the clock, um, and unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. I would like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an assistant professor of practice UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Capitol Hill has been Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent bipartisan and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. And joining us from the beautiful city of Vilnius, Lithuania, has been leading Russian opposition figure Vladimir Malov, in addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarność, and for a Russia without lawlessness and corruption. Vladimir also served as Russia's Deputy Energy Minister in 2002. Thank you both for a lively and enlightening discussion. Thank, thank you, Brian. Thank you. I'd also like thank to thank you, our, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and working order throughout our discussion. And a very big thanks to Mariah Jalad, who for the past year has been handling our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life and cleaning up our many messes. Big congratulations to Mariah. She'll be graduating this weekend. The, the, the bad news is she'll be moving on, and there will be some pretty big shoes to fill in the production room there once she is gone. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week for our last podcast before the holidays. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.